Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. You have to think of neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity as completely antagonistic. And they are deeply involved and they're kind of both active all the time. But then you have to start looking at, well, if you're skewed. So I, going back to the forest fire analogy, it's neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is that green Portland forest that's just growing and thriving, right? Versus neuroinflammation is the whole dang thing is burning down. So we need balance there. Hello, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I am talking with my very long time, very good friend, Brandon Vermeer, all about mental health, brain inflammation or brain on fire and his testing that's known as the mental map. Brendan is a holistic health practitioner, researcher, podcaster, and educator. He has a personal history with mental health struggles that has led him on this fierce journey to change the way the world views, addresses, and tests mental health. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. And Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No more needing to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Brendan, my good friend, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I love that we have an excuse to hang out virtually, and I'm sure we'll co-create some good energy and education today. Well, considering for people who are listening, before we started recording, we spent about 30 minutes catching up. So it's always fun to talk with you because we have so much to talk about and to catch up about. But today, we are talking about something that's very near and dear to your heart, but also very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, which of course is mental health. So things like depression and anxiety, neuroinflammation, and even progressing that further into dementia and Alzheimer's and other conditions such as that. So I'm really excited to get into the weeds about that with you as somebody who has really spent a lot of time on social media and in the world educating people about it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a huge subject. I mean, I keep seeing all these statistics floating around of how it's estimated about 1 billion people on earth have a mental health disorder. And then you start kind of digging into that of is it increased diagnosis and more diagnostic labels, more mental health conditions, more awareness. But then you look at the epidemiology of like suicide and Alzheimer's. So, and it's getting way more trendy. There's so much more kind of self-help, self-healing, psycho-emotional, self-therapy kind of stuff floating around. And all the while, I mean, I'll candidly say, I think we're really missing what, in my opinion, is the main conversation that we should be having. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for those who don't know you, give us a little brief intro as to who you are, how you got into this, what you stand for, and then I'm going to jump right into the hard questions. Absolutely. No, it sounds good. You know, every time I do a podcast, people want to hear the story and it's like, there's like the painfully long version that I've told on, on other things, other platforms, but I've gotten good at kind of succinctly consolidating into a few sentences because it's like, 
this whole journey really started for me where when I was 17, senior year of high school, I was just getting ready for senior wrestling season. And at that point in time, being a Navy SEAL was like my life drill, my life goal dream. And when I was 17, so going into winter, which is when wrestling season is, I was doing a physical with my primary care physician for sports. And I think I mentioned something about how winter makes me depressed, right? So a little seasonal affective and without any blood work, without any kind of evaluation, not even a subjective questionnaire, no referral to a psychologist or psychiatrist or anything. It was just like, hey kid, here's Zoloft, sertraline. I always kind of facetiously joke of like, now we have all these stern black box warnings of sexual dysfunction and increased suicidal ideation. None of that, right? So I'm just a 17 year old kid, I don't know anything. So I start taking the drug and move forward. So then kind of fast forward a little bit where the Navy SEAL aspiration kind of got taken away from me. I was medically discharged from boot camp because I had a pre-existing injury or they deemed it pre-existing. Therefore, it's not their liability or problem. So I was already hindsight 2020. I was already kind of a high functioning, depressed young man trying to find my way through life and graduating high school and just kind of uh, got kicked out of the Navy against my will sort of thing. Around that point in time, I mean, obviously losing that sense of purpose, that identity of I'm supposed to be that Navy SEAL guy, and I've been working my ass off for how many years towards that. So that was obviously another big toll on the mental health. And it was during that time that I got certified as a personal trainer and nutrition coach because the health, fitness, nutrition, obviously just going into Navy SEAL training, you have to be interested in that stuff to be able to train your body and get ready for that. But being kind of a workoutaholic, like I was always at the gym and in that environment, I was kind of at this crossroads of like the military wasn't going to happen. Academia just didn't resonate with me. Being a college kid didn't resonate. And I didn't really know what I would study other than like exercise physiology. And so anyways, long story short, I started my career as a health and fitness professional, nutrition coach, personal trainer. And I worked for Lifetime Fitness, which I still work out there every day. My very first job was scrubbing toilets at that gym. And it was kind of cool to be where I'm at now, like hindsight. But I really just, with that business and with the exercise physiology, nutritional biochemistry, I just fell in love with the science of the human metabolism and how the body functions. And I was always known as the science guy for fitness and nutrition. So then it was when I actually went through my own mental health crisis and a toxic relationship that really just made the mental health worse. So I'll speed it up where there was an intentional overdose. I was in a coma for like three nights, almost died. I literally went through the conventional psychiatric system where emergency room to ICU to a psych ward over the span of a week. I could go into all the painful detail, but like I can simply say that I've experienced firsthand how dysfunctional and archaic the modern conventional psychiatric system is. So when I got out of the hospital and I'm trying to get back to normal life, I'm trying to get my own mental health on check. And then I was in this toxic relationship and living in a water damaged home and trying to navigate that both like psychoemotionally, but then it is an important part of the story where my ex-fiance got really, really sick and nobody knew what was wrong with her. And so I kind of took it upon myself and maybe that's my codependency toxic trait, call myself out on it now. But at the time, I took it upon myself to try to save her, right? Try to figure out what nobody else could. We went to our conventional doctor. Blood work looks normal. There's nothing wrong with you. But you do have MTHFR. That's how I got into methylation was because of that. Tried naturopathic medicine, chiropractic, physical therapy, nothing working. 
She wasted away, got really emaciated. Her behavior became more volatile. To this day, I suspect that it was mold illness. Never confirmed it. Don't know. She had long-standing history of unresolved trauma, multiple concussions from cheerleading and stunting. The water-damaged home is certainly interesting. The MTHFR predisposition is kind of an interesting factor. So I never confirmed any of it. We ended up splitting apart. And she ended up taking her own life in 2020, whereas I have gone on to heal and become healthier, happier. So that's kind of the backstory that got me on this sort of metabolic approach to mental health. And somehow I got to where I am today, where all I do is talk about like microglial activation. But that's the thing is like, how did you get there where that's a very specific kind of niche focus at a cellular level? But when you look at the overall journey, it's like, well, it was a very organic evolution. And it was all very like passion and purpose driven. So. And when you talk about mental health, one of the big things that you say is you're educating about this. And recently I did a post, I had to do a lecture on, or I got to do a lecture that included mental health. And I was going through all of this literature as you do, where they would start out the study with saying, well, we've known since 1985 that inflammation plays a major role in depression. Well, we've known since 1978 that zinc, low zinc, can lead to depression. Well, we've known for decades that this particular nutrient or this mold or this thing like really accelerates what's happening in the brain and can lead to mental health outcomes. And I thought we've known this information for decades and we're the conventional psychiatric route seems from all outside purposes and your inside experience to do very little about that. And I would imagine a lot of people who are listening are probably nodding their heads going, yeah, I was given very little options other than take this pill, which may or may not have helped, and maybe therapy, which may or may not have helped. And that's about it. Whereas you have jumped in and really peeled back the onion on what is going on to cause all the inflammation, the brain to freak out and is what we'll get to what you called microglial activation. So can you actually really just expand on that? Like, What is the current model with what's going on in the psychiatric world and how do you view it? How should we be viewing it differently? No, I think you post that really, really well because that's what I don't get. I really don't get it where I remember the experience that I had as a teenager and a young 20-something-year-old person of what my doctors told and how I was treated by the psychiatrist and the therapist. And I went through all of that. So then it didn't make sense to me because then as I got deeper into my career and I really started deep diving into, well, what does the science say? What does the literature say, right? You know, our society is really hot on what the science says these days. I'm like, but are we really? Because that I didn't understand that where then there's this massive body of evidence that very strongly elucidates all these things that you're talking about, whether it's the low zinc in the nutraceutical orthomolecular side or the inflammatory component. And so our whole psychiatric model, we've been sold that narrative of, well, mental illness is, is because we're not sure why it happens, but it has to do with brain chemical imbalances. And so here's the drug that modulates your brain chemical imbalance. So that narrative was based on the monoamine theory of mental illness which is like two decades outdated by this point. And it's not that that model or theory is incorrect so much as it is 
more downstream and secondary to these new leading theories. So currently, the more predominant theories are the cytokine theory, which is more focusing on the role of primarily pro-inflammatory, but to be fair, any kind of pleiotropic or pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory cytokines. So looking at the cytokine milieu and how all of those cytokines are altering neurological activity. So that's kind of one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is the neurotrophic theory, which is more focused on neurotrophic factors, which are just proteins that regulate the birth of new neurons through neurogenesis and the remodeling of our neural networks and neural connections through neuroplasticity. So then as I was getting more up to speed on all the literature, the same theme of microglial cells and activation kept coming up because these critical immune cells of the brain, they actually regulate the neuroinflammatory cascade, but also co-regulate neuroplasticity and synaptic trimming and pruning. So this is where I've gotten to this point because it's like, you really can't say that you're up to date on the literature if you're not well aware of the role of inflammation and oxidative stress and driving that pathophysiology and dysfunction that presents as dysregulated neurotransmitter activity and then all these symptoms thereof. So when you look at how suicide was the 10th leading cause of death for a long time in America, it just got knocked off the top 10 because of COVID, but still major cause of death in the United States. And especially it's like the second leading cause of death for young people ages like 10 to 34. And then you look at the fact that Alzheimer's neurodegeneration is the sixth leading cause of death and diabetes is seven. I feel like it should be some common sense of like, wait, neurodegeneration, suicide, like what's the common underlying physiological mechanism? And it's like, well, it's oxidative stress and inflammation. So that to me is very exciting and empowering because for one thing, it just destroys the narrative that big pharma uses to just dispense psychiatric drugs like Halloween candy. But more importantly, it empowers us to have a more constructive conversation about like, Great. So what's causing that and what do we do about it? And that's a much more functional conversation to have. <laughs> that's the truth. And actually, for people who don't know, I want to go back to the middle of that and just define what is a cytokine. So somebody's listening to this. Maybe they've heard like they know the word hormone. They know the word protein, but a pro or anti-inflammatory cytokine might be a new one. So define that and how it relates to the immune system. Yeah, absolutely. So just proteins that the immune system uses to communicate with itself. and some cytokines, and then there's chemokines, but we don't need to go there. But some cytokines are more anti-inflammatory in nature. Some are more pro-inflammatory in nature. And then some are kind of both. And so that's that pleiotropic term. And so the milieu referring to the environment, I always like to talk in terms of the cytokine milieu, because it's like your cells are going to be responding to signals that are floating around in the space. So you think about how are your cells going to respond if they're marinating and a bunch of pro-inflammatory messengers, right? Like it's probably not going to be a good thing. So I think that's a really crucial concept to understand. And part of that that becomes relevant for these days is like monoclonal antibodies are all the rage these days, right? Which, I mean, I think it's great. Like I love pharmaceutical science. It's absolutely amazing. Like, cool, we can make these designer antibodies that block a certain thing or protein or whatever, go bind and neutralize it. So for all the people listening, it's like, this new wave of drugs that's all monoclonal antibodies, a lot of what Big Pharma is currently doing is creating these designer antibodies that work. The mechanism of action is to block these pro-inflammatory cytokines. And while that's really cool, and it's kind of like blocking the spark before it starts a fire, that's great. But at the same time, it comes at the risk of 
suppressed immune function and increased risk of infection. So there was a drug that just went through phase two clinical trials, and it was a drug that works by monoclonal antibody, signer antibody that blocks interleukin-6, which is the most well-studied, popular pro-inflammatory cytokine known, known to humans. And they originally used it for rheumatoid arthritis that didn't have great efficacy, people were dying and stuff, getting infections. So then they did it for treatment-resistant depression, right? So it's like you do an SSRI, maybe that doesn't work for you, let's use this. And that's cool and all, but then the logic becomes like, how are we going to combat a mental health crisis during an infectious disease crisis using an immunosuppressive drug? And as functional providers, we're going to look at that and go, okay, well, if blocking interleukin-6 is such a powerful mechanism with great efficacy, maybe we should be having this more root cause conversation around why was interleukin-6 high to begin with? And that's a much more interesting thing. The word inflammation, as you know, gets tossed around a lot and you know what it means and I know what it means, but for people listening, and I think your story is a really great place to anchor inflammation where you talk about head trauma and mold exposure and uh, probably stress and, and diet and gut health, et cetera. But can you, like how, where, give us the lowdown on inflammation. If somebody's listening to this saying, yes, I have depression. Gosh, that sounds like me. I went on an SRI, it didn't really work, or I've had to increase my dose a couple times or switch or add an extra. What do you mean inflammation could be contributing to the symptoms that I'm feeling? Absolutely. I usually describe inflammation as like the cleansing fire that the immune system uses to fight off pathogens and remodel tissues. I think that's a pretty fair explanation because most people have been trained to think about inflammation of like, you twist your knee and it gets all puffy and red and inflamed and <laughs> it's uh, holding water, it's hot, it's burning. And what's going on in the tissues is there's been tissue damage. So there's all of these, what we call damage associated molecular patterns from the tissue damage. And that activates this immune process where the immune cells got to go clean it up, remodel it, help it heal. And so cytokines are floating around all over the place to communicate and recruit other white blood cells to the area. But it's all this very extremely complex and amazingly orchestrated cascade of events that ultimately is to clean up and remodel the tissues. So I always compare like acute and controlled inflammation would be like farmers burning their field where they cut the lines in the ground, they have it under control. It's a strategic burn for the sake of recycling nutrients back to the soil. Our body pretty much does the same thing Whereas then like chronic inflammation, like, oops, out of control, the whole forest is on fire. And of course, with inflammation, I think it's important for people to understand it's not binary. It's not like you do or do not have it. I like to be talking in terms of the inflammatory load, the degree of inflammation, right? So obviously, as we get into different ways of measuring inflammation using biomarkers, like you can't say that a C-reacted protein of one is the same as a CRP of 15, right? It's proportionate. So when we look at the American population, which there's just no refuting that the average American is inflamed at a low chronic meta level. And that's really what's driving the chronic disease epidemic, but then also the neurodegeneration. It's like, what do you think neurodegeneration is? Like your brain is cooking long-term because of that chronic inflammation. So I think it's a really empowering thing because then people can start looking at their own environments, lifestyles, and all these factors that might be contributing to that out-of-control forest fire. And it can be anything, inflammation can be driven by anything, things you know about, 
I ask this question often, or I pose the statement often is, are there foods that you eat that you shouldn't be eating? Like you already know you shouldn't be eating. And I've actually posted this on social media before in a question box. And oh my gosh, the amount of people that write in, they're like, oh yeah, I know I shouldn't eat ice cream and I have it every day. Or, oh, I know I shouldn't eat corn, but I love chips and salsa. Or, oh, oh yeah, I know I shouldn't eat whatever it is, but because they love it or they've got that dopamine reward response to it or it's childhood thing that they're attached to. But every time they're eating that food, it's driving a little bit of inflammation. So food is a big one, but it's even things you can't, maybe don't know or can't see. Like you mentioned mold, mold exposure in your house or building or what have you. It's really across the gamut, isn't it? When we're looking at inflammation, you talk about pathogens, which could be parasites or worms or viruses that you've picked up or been exposed to. And now they're kind of hanging out low grade, long-term chronic and contributing, but it can also be other things like blood sugar and insulin can trigger, worsen, cause, <laughs> and sort of inflammatory. Can you talk about that, the state, how metabolic health relates to inflammation and then subsequently how your brain functions? Yeah, absolutely. It's a fun thing to talk about because as you're saying, there's so many possible root cause factors, right? Like in our industry, we always talk like, what's the root cause as if it's singular. And I think all savvy practitioners recognize it's never singular. It's how many contributing factors are going on here. And for each individual, it might be different, right? For this person, it's because they have excess body fat, low lean mass, high, hyperglycemic, dyslipidemic, fatty liver, more of a metabolic illness, metabolic syndrome kind of picture. For somebody else that maybe lives an impeccably healthy lifestyle, eats a clean diet, whatever, maybe it's some genetic predispositions, little MTHFR, CBS, HLA, whatever, mixed with the right trigger. Like, oh, I got bit by a tick when I was 15, or I had a strep infection when I was 20, or, or chicken pox, and that more pathogenic side. But especially where we can kind of overlay the pathogenic with the metabolic is, I mean, that's what happened with the pandemic, right? Where that study that came out in 2020 saying, 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And that study was using like really crude metrics of health, lipids and waist circumference and BMI. Those are not like worthless data points, but they're not super sensitive or even really characteristic of true metabolic health and fitness, right? So then it's like out of that 12% that's metabolically healthy by these kind of crusty criteria, how many of them are actually like really healthy or fit, right? So that metabolic component can't be overlooked enough. And you know, I'm starting to hear more buzz about like metabolic psychiatry, which is interesting because like, as you know, I was speaking in Georgia last year at a well-respected functional medicine for mental health kind of event. So I'm speaking to hundreds of mostly MD psychiatrists and having this background with nutrition, fitness, everything, metabolic health and metabolic physiology and biochemistry makes perfect sense to me. And only kind of focusing on like psychiatric disease and neuropsychiatric disorders, like if you don't understand that metabolic tie-in, I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of good because even just this is kind of a fun fact that I think encapsulates a lot of this where Tina and I talk about this sometimes where with body fat mass and lean mass, just at a more basic, superficial, physical kind of level, okay, I mean, we know that increased body fat increases your risk for chronic disease and infectious disease and all of these things. But at a cool mechanistic level, like excess body fat produces lots of interleukin-6, which is that pro-inflammatory cytokine that we were talking about earlier. 
So that's kind of part of it is like, well, if you're going to use a drug that works by blocking interleukin-6, but the reason why the IL-6 is high might be because they're obese. They have excess body fat. Now, on the flip side of that, it's like, why have we been telling geriatric patients with neurodegeneration to participate in physical therapy? It slows down the neurodegeneration. It's like, why is that? And it's like, now we know that your muscles, your skeletal muscle produces brain-drive neurotrophic factor, which is also known as metabokine, because it functions as a muscle signaling molecule or, or myokine that actually they're looking at using it to treat type 1 diabetes because it can regenerate beta cells in the pancreas and decrease hepatic glucose excursion and hyperglycemia. But most of us know BDNF as like, that's your most neuroprotective protein. It regulates neuroplasticity and essentially neuroregeneration. So what I'm kind of getting at is illustrating this point of for proper mental health, we need neurophysiological homeostasis, which kind of comes down to this balance between neuroinflammation and neuroplasticity. And most people are heavily skewed into this neuroinflammatory profile and phenotype. So it's like their brains are degenerating faster than they're regenerating. And it, I would argue that, you know, it's not, I don't think mold illness or Lyme disease or mercury, I don't think those are the things driving most mental health disorders in the United States. I think it's more the metabolic and the microbiome component that shoots them into that skewed neurodegeneration, neuroinflammation, and compromised neuroregeneration, neuroplasticity. And even just improving your body composition is a huge therapeutic target that you can act upon yourself holistically to dramatically shift that back in your favor. Yeah, absolutely. And I will, I have two questions. One is I want to put a caveat that I was just thinking about. Obviously, we had clients and patients, if you do become more metabolically sound, you improve insulin resistance, become more what we like, which is insulin sensitive, get your glucose down, your visceral adiposity, the visceral fat around your organs, you've decreased, et cetera. We fully understand that if you have things to deal with, your big and little T's, big traumas and little traumas, you may still be depressed. If somebody's listening to this going, well, I did all that. I lost weight. I'm still depressed. We fully understand that there's an entire section trauma can still be cause a lot of changes in the brain and contribute to inflammation. But I don't want people to miss the point of that trauma, looking at maybe judging or looking at other people and saying, oh, it's not, I have trauma. So that's the only thing that's with me. Yet their blood sugar is a mess. Their inflammation is a mess. Their gut is a mess. A lot of their body physiology is unhappy, not just the big and little trauma in their life. It's definitely, as you said, it's not one thing. It's root causes, despite the title of this podcast, it is definitely root cause is. But I do want to circle back to neuroplasticity for people who don't understand what that is or why we want our brains to do that in a good way. Talk about that. Yeah. Because there are so many possible root cause factors, I keep finding myself lately, I keep saying like the three pillars are metabolism, microbiome, and mindset. I think everything else kind of falls under one of those umbrellas, right? And so I think this is sort of my emerging philosophy, I guess, or ideology, but I keep gravitating more and more towards it. And the more I think about it, it's, it's pretty perfect where it's like, all right, if your microbiome health is on point, that's a huge box to check. A lot of other things are going to be handled because of that, your metabolic health and the mindset. But you could check one of those boxes. And if the other two are not checked, you're probably still going to be depressed and anxious and whatever else is wrong with you. So I look at it as part of my job to help people to reflect back to them 
like, all right, looks like there's a little room for opportunity in the metabolic department or like your microbiome's trash. And sometimes if, like you said, maybe they've done that, they've done all the protocols, they're healthy, active, fit. It's like, well, what's going on with mindset? Thoughts become proteins. And so that ties into neuroplasticity really well, because I think neuroplasticity is of critical importance, whether it's in more of an allopathic medical setting or even like a therapy coaching psychology, because essentially neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. So neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons versus neuroplasticity, more referring to the way that our neural connections can rewire. And so the whole, if they fire together, they wire together is kind of the catchy adage that floats around a little bit. But what's really cool is like neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is in the literature, it's usually more correlated with like learning and memory, right? So a lot of the research is more around neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's and dementia, because they were trying to figure out like, why do people when they have Parkinson's and Alzheimer's or whatever, why can't they like learn their memory goes, they don't remember who they are, like what a horrible way to go. So that's how a lot of the neuroplasticity research developed. But now it's so much more expansive because we can think in terms of, well, it's not just a matter of learning and memory, but it's learning new belief systems, right? So with trauma, for example, trauma is your body's way of trying to protect you. Like, oh, well, I know from experience that interacting with that kind of thing was like deeply damaging and scary and traumatizing. So anytime I get near anything like that, sympathetic nerve system kicks on to modify my behavior. And even from like a coaching perspective, like coaching psychology, if we're trying to help get people healthy, it's more behavior modification over a long period of time at a sustainable rate, right? So functional medicine only works. We can't just throw protocols. We also have to modify the behavior that led to them being sick and dysfunctional to begin with. And it's like, well, to modify behavior, we have to change their belief systems. To change their belief systems, we have to change their neural networks. In order to change their neural networks, we need adequate neuroplasticity and synaptic trimming and pruning, which is how we remodel the way our brain is wired. And to do that, well, neuroinflammation completely compromises that. You have to think of neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity as completely antagonistic. And they are deeply involved and they're kind of both active all the time. But then you have to start looking at, well, if you're skewed. So I, going back to the forest fire analogy, it's neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is that green Portland forest that's just growing and thriving, right? Versus neuroinflammation is the whole dang thing is burning down. So we need balance there. Most definitely. And you mentioned microbiome, and I definitely, we're going to get into lab testing in just a second, but how does the microbiome play any role with the brain? Which I'm kind of smirking as I ask this question, because I think people who are listening to the podcast know the answer, and I know the answer, but I do still to this day find it very surprising that our conventional medicine is so separated, right? We have ologists for everything. We, we have a neurologist, we have a psychologist, we have a gastroenterologist, we have a gynecologist or a whatever, and proctologist, and none of them seem to connect or communicate to each other, and yet the body communicates all day long. It works as a system. So let's start with microbiome. How does that even remotely relate to the symptoms you are having on a mental health level? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's huge. It, the gut-brain axis is arguably my number one sort of area of focus. And whereas like the metabolic stuff is more like my background and my roots, but then that gut-brain axis is kind of the focal point of most of what I do. Because I always like to think about the microbiome as like your garden of life. 
trillions of these cute little microbes. I have like the giant microbes sitting on my <laughs> desk over here. Such a nerd, but I love it. I would think for microbes because it's like our microbes train our immune system, right? All of these ancient microbes that have been inhabiting us for so long, they can either be very health promoting or disease promoting, right? Some of these more pathogenic opportunistic organisms like the candida and the clostridia and H. pylori and whatever that can drive massive oxidation and inflammation and infection in the body as opposed to all of our good flora that can promote good immune system maturation. So this is where like that microglial tie-in is those immune cells of our brain that regulate neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity. It's actually the microbiome that matures them. So when we could have a whole separate podcast on neurodevelopmental disorders, where really arguably and rooted in a lot of good evidence is this emerging argument of like, well, poor microbiome health, low microbiome diversity, increased opportunistic pathogens, low strain counts, low short chain fatty acid production, all of these things, it causes this dysfunction of the brain and of the brain cells directly. I mean, of course, there's the vagal pathway of how the gut can be communicating directly through the brain via the vagus nerve, but then the, more of the humoral pathway as we develop this dysbiotic and leaky gut. Now we have all of these toxins and pathogen molecules like lipopolysaccharide and exotoxins and mycotoxins, all these things. And so now it's leaching into our bloodstream and disrupting our blood-brain barrier and getting into the brain and driving massive microglial activation and neuroinflammation. So that's where literally my priorities when I work with people First, I have to get a baseline of like, what's going on in your body? Let me get some sensitive objective data that elucidates this neuroinflammatory storm. But then once I have a good baseline, like, all right, metabolic health, microbiome health, those are always my top two priorities. Let me make sure that you can digest and absorb your nutrients. You have good flora for good immune health and metabolic health. Make sure you're doing the right things metabolically with your lifestyle, your environment's on check because that'll fix most of the problems. And dysbiotic leaky gut, shout out to Karan, who we're both great friends with and everything, because he's done a lot of amazing pioneering work to make this concept of the leaky dysbiotic gut, more specifically, the endotoxemia, because that is arguably, arguably like the number one root cause factor that we have to consider for any sort of neuroinflammatory mental health disorder. So much so that I think this is a fun fact for the audience where in research settings, scientists are trying to induce neuroinflammation in rat models in order to study neuroinflammation, figure out how do we treat neuroinflammation. And the thing that they use in most neuroinflammatory research to stimulate neuroinflammation is the lipopolysaccharide, right? This is an extremely well-validated research model. So they'll like, all right, let's take some rats, inject some lipopolysaccharide, which will come from a leaky and dysbiotic gut those LPS are like the most potent stimulators of microglial activation and neuroinflammation. So it's kind of funny how even pharmaceutical research, it's like, well, let's use the endotoxins to create the neurodegeneration. So then we can use a synthetic drug to block or treat the neuroinflammation. And it's like, well, maybe we should be looking at the endotoxin burden to most Americans. So Quran coined the term standard American gut. And then I joke about the standard American metabolism. So he and I like to joke that Sam has a saggy gut, right? Like standard American <laughs> metabolism with standard American gut. Uncle Sam is just not living his best life, but it's a huge, huge focal point. And for those who are curious, Karan is one of the co-founders 
of a company called Microbiome Labs. If people are familiar, they have products. One of their big products is Megaspore, which is a spore-based probiotic. And he is a very prolific educator and researcher in the microbiome and a wonderful person to learn from. So that's Karan, who we are referencing. I want to go to the microglial activation before we get into lab testing, though, quickly. So microglial cells are probably a new cell not a lot of people have heard about. We've heard about white blood cells and we know about red blood cells. And maybe within there, we've heard of about some other cells, mast cells for allergies and histamine, but microglial cells may be a new one. What is a microglial cell? What does it do? Absolutely. So it's technically the white blood cell of the central nervous system. And some people probably know, like with your white blood cells, you have all these different types. You've got your monocytes and mast cells and eosinophils and all, all these different types of leukocytes. And originally researchers thought that the microglial cell was really monocytes from the periphery that had migrated up into the brain. But then they realized totally different cells with totally different origins. So then they coined them microglial cells. And so these microglial cells you can really just think of them as the innate white blood cell of the brain. And just like any other white blood cell in the body, its job is to ultimately protect from foreign invaders. That's the basic premise. But I always like to think of them as they're both the sentinels and the architects of the central nervous system. So as I said before, and I want to paint like a chronological sort of picture because we have like early in life with neurodevelopmental disorders, ADHD and autism and everything else. And then more mature adulthood, it's a lot of insomnia and depression and anxiety, bipolar, ADHD. And then later in life, it's more the Parkinson's and the Alzheimer's and whatever else. And we kind of look at all of these as totally separate conditions and whatever, when in reality, the same underlying physiology is underneath all of it, neurodevelopmental, mental health disorders, neurodegeneration. And it all goes back to these microglial cells. They are the cells that help mature the brain. So if there's a sort of miswiring, if you will, during neurodevelopment because of microglial dysfunction, essentially, or dysregulation, which we can get into. So they are kind of the focal point of neuropsychiatric research these days because they are the primary cell that will start that forest fire in the brain if there's pathogen we have to fight off or damage being done. But they also will help regenerate the brain. So all white blood cells are extremely dynamic and complex and just amazing. Immunology is literally the best. But with microglial cells, they have two primary phenotypes. So these microglial cells, they can be resting, which is what we call quiescent. So resting is like a police officer that's just like patrolling around the city. He's doing his rounds. He's just chilling, cruising, making sure everything's under control. But obviously, if that cop gets like radio signal of like, hey, there's a bad guy that you need to go like arrest or shoot. He's going to turn on his lights, stomp on the brakes, bust out his gun, kick down a door, maybe shoot somebody, whatever, versus like, hey, old lady needs help getting across the street, right? So he's being more protective to protect the old lady. So these microglial cells, they can either be patrolling, inactive, and sort of quiescent, just surveying. But as soon as they get a signal from those cytokines that we were talking about earlier, they're going to morph and activate into one of their two major forms. If he's either going to go M1, GI Joe, I need to mess somebody up versus like M2, anti-inflammatory, neuroprotective, I need to go help an old lady across the street. And so this is where I don't like talking in terms of microglial dysfunction because it's like the cells are not dysfunctional. The cells are appropriately responding to their environment. And so that's where we have to be looking at, okay, how much neuroinflammation, how much microglial activation towards this M1 neurodegenerating neuroinflammatory phenotype 
versus M2. And this is what big pharma is pouring millions and millions of dollars into. Trillions. Because if they can make synthetic drugs that let's switch the microglial activity from that neurodestructive to neuroregenerative, if we can make a drug, that's the next multi-billion dollar drug right there. But we can use the exact same scientific understanding to translate that into holistic and functional intervention of like, well, why is the neuroinflammation high? Why are the microglial cells polarized in that way? What input signals are they receiving to cause that? And what can we do with your environment, lifestyle, psychology, supplementation, medication with your doctor in order to ameliorate that and get the microglial cells working in our favor, which is that balance, right? We might have to like, oh, I got COVID, I got sick, and it was trying to infect my brain. Guess what? Your microglial cells are the ones that protect you from that. But if that fire doesn't go out, if there's not a resolution to the inflammation, that's where it'll start cooking long-term and cause mental health disorders and neurodegeneration disrupt your neurotransmission activity. So it's a huge, it is the primary thing that we have to think about with mental health. And before everyone I know is going to be like, well, what do I do about this? Yeah, We want to know, can we test this? What are we up against? And that's one of your big areas of expertise. And one of the big reasons I had you on, because as you have really poured through the literature and pulled all this together and the best analogies ever, you've really actually also summed up really helpful testing to evaluate that. So let's talk about that. Yeah, no, I'd love to. And I appreciate the opportunity because my obsession and passion for testing and objectivity like that was rooted in the beginning of my career. Even as a 18-year-old brand new personal trainer and nutrition coach, I was taught and trained to be using sensitive objective data to guide the health building journey, right? So it was like, you can imagine with a weight loss client, how are you going to measure success? If you're using the number on the scale, that's not going to go well. Let's just leave it at that, right? So it's like, hey, I bet that your blood chemistry is going to get better first. I bet your triglycerides and blood sugar and lipids and liver enzymes and leptin levels, like I'm sure that's probably going to get better before you see a change in your body in the mirror or a change on the number on the scale. So I've just always been obsessed with that because especially in the functional medicine world, I think it gets really confusing of like, well, how do I know what my root cause is? Do I need to do like <laughs> literally 50 different tests looking for the presence of a thing that might be hurting your body? And the missing link that I see is, well, if you're not assessing the physiology to see like what damage is even being done to your body, is your physiology even disrupted? There's no point in testing for mycotoxins in the urine or metals in the hair. There's no point in looking for the presence of something hurting the body if we don't see that the body is being harmed and it's communicating that through the language of these biomarkers. So as I was pouring through all the literature and navigating the functional lab testing world, I always was using blood work as the backbone. And so I designed the mental map, which map stands for microglial activation profile. Great branding, better science. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I can appreciate good branding, but I more so can appreciate good science. I think this is both. But the whole point, as the name suggests, was I wanted to create a lab panel that is as directly as possible assessing for the likelihood of microglial activation and neuroinflammation. Now, the critics that I can hear from afar, and I'm well prepared to drown them in literature, (laughs) the criticism would be, well, you can't measure neuroinflammation, right? Because if you're using blood testing, serological testing, or urine testing or stool testing, 
which the mental map uses all the above, that's not reflective of what's going on in the functional tissue of the central nervous system. You'd have to do a spinal tap, but that's really not entirely accurate. It's not at all in alignment with the literature. When you dig in, even classic biomarkers like C-reactive protein have been extremely well-established as being essentially proxy markers or surrogate markers that could correlate with neuroinflammation. It's not always one for one, but so this is where I designed what I think was a pretty sophisticated lab panel that's assessing a lot of different serological blood markers, some urine markers, and then even some stool markers, because we're trying to qualify the degree of inflammation and oxidative stress, and also assessing other core functions like methylation and nutrient imbalances, like the zinc that we talked about. And there's so much more to it. I mean, it's hard to even speak to because I could go on for like 40 hours or something, but I just, I wanted to have a panel that could sensitively, accurately, and objectively use very clinically validated study biomarkers that allows us to objectively measure this and then track progress, right? So now we have an accurate baseline and then we can apply whatever intervention resonates with them, whether that's tripping on ayahuasca in the rainforest or taking 30 supplements or getting metabolically fit or moving out of the moldy house or facing their trauma, whatever, but apply the intervention and did it work? Like, are your biomarkers moving in the right direction? And what I've found through the research I've been doing with this panel is the level of specificity and accuracy and sensitivity is so great. You can track very small improvements over the course of time. And I think that's very powerful because our neurolimbic system has to get that sensation of reward to encourage more behavior. So if you're following a protocol or a program or whatever you're doing, if you don't get that sensation of this is working, I'm making progress and I know that objectively, your brain is literally going to try to get you to stop doing whatever you're doing because it's not working. So I think having that sensitivity and objective data that you can track over time to see like, how am I making progress? Oh, I'm making progress in this area, but not this area. So then working with a practitioner to fine tune your program until you can get to where you want to be. Give us an example of a couple of the markers that are on the mental map, some of which people have probably heard about. And I know there's some on there that are going to be completely foreign to folks. Yeah, no, for sure. I think there's a good expansion. And part of it, I'll admit, part of the idea to create the test was I'm doing research in a needed area of research with cryptopyral disorder because this is something. So, cryptopyral is one of the markers, it's the urine marker on the mental map that there's enough research to say, like, this really matters, but there's a lot that we don't know about it. So part of how I created the mental map was I was like, well, let's measure something we don't know a lot about and compare it to a lot of things we know a lot about, you know, and see what those associations and trends are. So some of the more recognizable markers that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with are the C-reactive protein as the most widely used inflammatory biomarker known to man, or homocysteine is one of the more recognizable markers that's extremely well studied in relation to mental health and neurodegeneration. Whereas some of the more exotic markers are like the cryptopyrrole or thromboxane B2, which is a really exciting urine marker. I personally really like Terran. That's an immunological marker that's very reflective of immune activation. It can be peripheral macrophages or microglial cells in the brain. That's a whole conversation in itself. But that marker in particular, easily the most sensitive marker of viral infection. And yet nobody was talking about it. Well, except I was talking you about were. it. But no, <laughs> I didn't hear anybody talking about it during the pandemic. And it's like, 
if there's a single biomarker we should have been researching and tracking for COVID, it was that one and nobody did. But yeah, thank goodness for you though. I guess. Uh, job security, I don't know. <laughs> job security, I, I know. know. And now people can track in the mental map. So I know, obviously, then the very next question is people are going to go, what do I do? What do I do? You have been talking a lot about different ways that this neuroinflammation occurs. And then with testing, we have actual trackable biomarkers to also help us put somebody on a path to healing. And so there, I hope what people gather from this is there's no one quick fix. If you had a magic pill, if I had a magic pill, we are not gatekeepers. We would just give it to everyone probably for free, given the amount of mental health issues in the world that we've got going on right now. But leave us with like your top two or three practical, tactical things to help people get started on where do I even begin? This seems overwhelming. My practitioner doesn't do this. I don't know where to start. Help us out. Yeah, absolutely. I will say to, to plug all the practitioners and, and coaches, I think consumers, clients, general population, they need to give us the opportunity to help them. I find one of the biggest barriers to success for most of these people, self-healers, whatever they identify as, they should be working with a professional, right? I still, to this day, I work with a therapist prophylactically, like happier and healthier than ever, but it's still an important part of my overall health journey that I'm on and constantly evolving. So definitely, I don't think people should try to just navigate everything for themselves find that practitioner and coach that really resonates with you, that can meet you where you're at and help you evolve and heal is great. With that said, that's kind of why I post what I did before of whatever intervention resonates. Like you're going to naturally drift towards whatever resonates with you. And I'm a big advocate of listen to your intuition and go in the direction that resonates, right? Because there isn't a magic pill necessarily, although I will say I'm a big advocate of psychedelic therapy and medicine and I think psychedelics are about the closest thing to a magical pill, especially relevant because one of the main mechanisms of psychedelics is it decreases neuroinflammation and increases neuroplasticity. That is arguably the main mechanism through the serotonergic system. So that's really exciting. And so I was joking earlier, but not really of like if tripping in the rainforest and ayahuasca resonates with you, great. But part of my point is be a scientist in it, be methodical, be objective, use objective data so you can get the baseline, apply whatever intervention. It could be psychotherapy or neurolimbic or polyvagal or nine caps of megaspore per day or whatever it is, but just at least be objective and be honest with yourself in that and retest so that way you can guide that. And obviously working with practitioner that's trained in this stuff would be ideal. But to summarize though, going back to the mindset, metabolism, microbiome. I would highly encourage people to not get too lost down these really niche rabbit holes that we'd love to geek out on in this industry, but zoom it back of like, be brutally honest with yourself. Is your mindset on point? And if not, what do you need to do about it? Is your microbiome health and gut health on point? If not, what are you going to do about it? And is your metabolic health, right? So that's where the holistic principles of sunshine, time in nature, sleep hygiene, stress management, clean, whole food, nutritious diet, nutrient-dense diet, plenty of exercise and activity, meaningful interactions with loved ones, serving the collective more than serving yourself might not be a bad idea. Dropping the victim mentality might be a good idea, but those are major components. And I think it's a cool microbiome thing. I think we are like microbes, right? 
And with microbes, they have quorum sensing. They use quorum sensing to communicate, to proliferate, to do whatever microbes do. And I think humans have that too. And I think we're so disconnected as a collective, whereas I think if we kind of came back together and united and spread some good energy through quorum sensing at a kind of quantum level, but even like a fun fact of social isolation has been associated with decreased neurogenesis and increased neuroinflammation. So that I'm hoping that all these thoughts I'm putting out there, it changes the way people look at it. And like, what can I do today? And what's holding me back from a more fulfilling and self-actualizing way of living? Because I think all too often people are just like, well, what's the perfect diet? Is it carnivore or veganism? Or is it somewhere in the middle? I'm so confused. Or, well, is it because I was traumatized once upon a time? And they get so hooked on that one thing. And all the while, I think that's like this neurotic orthorexic spiritual bypassing where they're overlooking all of the healing opportunities that they have in front of them. Right. And I think that's where having that objective data holds us accountable. Because those biomarkers aren't going to move in the right direction if you don't change your behavior. And to change your behavior, you got to change your beliefs. And change your beliefs might help to put out the fire in your brain so you can think straight. Right. Amen to that, for sure. And for those who are interested in more psychedelic information, I do have on another podcast, Dr. Erica Zelfand came on, and she does definitely talk about the therapeutics of psychedelics. I am in the state of Oregon, but also the state of Colorado or past bills around using psychedelics therapeutically. They're using them therapeutically in research at Johns Hopkins, at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA hospitals. And so initially, I know people sometimes can recoil and have a, like, that's what you do at raves and festivals <laughs> type response, as opposed to the really cool research that's coming out around psilocybin and ketamine and some of these others. So Dr. Erica Zelfand is one. And then for the metabolism, only because we don't have enough time to go into Brendan today, but I do have Dr. Tina Moore on. Brendan mentioned Tina earlier by first name. She is on a different podcast with me as well, talking about, of course, muscle metabolism, resiliency. And I will very soon here be having Sam Miller on to talk about the science of the metabolism. So there are a lot of additional resources if you feel this 45 minutes just wasn't quite enough. I feel you and we have more <laughs> for you, but... Those will be great episodes, two of my favorites. Yeah. Right? And it all ties together. But for those of you who are listening going, no, no, I want to learn from Brendan. I want to see Brendan. How do people find you? How do they learn from you? How can they get this? Tell us all the things in all the places. Oh, for sure. I appreciate the very flattering conversation that I'm getting all like red and bothered because <laughs> it just has that effect on me. But I'm not hard to find. It's the Holistic Savage on Instagram, which is my main platform. That's where I dispense everything. So anybody that wants to get plugged in. So we obviously have our FMHP training program where we train providers. We work with clients and self-healers through this more unique model that we're sort of encapsulating. But I put out lots of free content. I love creating the content and sharing this education. It's changed my life, hundreds of my clients and loved ones. I'm seeing the impact. And I mean, there's nothing more fulfilling than watching that healing cascade. So very passionate about the work that I do. And it's really a pleasure to have the opportunity to share some of it. Oh, well, I am just so thrilled to have you on today. One, because you are a dear friend of mine. And two, because you are just a wealth of knowledge around this. And it is a topic that unfortunately is overlooked, under promoted. I can't think of the right word, but a lot of people are struggling in the mental health area right now. They're not satisfied with the options they've been given. They're not satisfied with the options they're currently on or taking or using, not even realizing there is all this literature out there that you are highly educated on to really just help people 
turn their cruise ship around. So thank you. Thank you for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.